Section 2 of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume 1, Chapter 2 Lord Hampstead. Lord Hampstead, though he would not go into Parliament or belong to any London club, or walk about the streets with a chimney pot hat, or perform any of his public functions as a young nobleman should do, had nevertheless his own amusements and his own extravagances. In the matter of money he was placed outside his father's liberality, who was himself inclined to be liberal enough, by the fact that he had inherited a considerable portion of his maternal grandfather's fortune. It might almost be said truly of him that money was no object to him. It was not that he did not often talk about money and think about money. He was very prone to do so, saying that money was the most important factor in the world's justices and injustices. But he was so fortunately circumstanced as to be able to leave money out of his own personal consideration, never being driven by the want of it to deny himself anything or tempted by a superabundance to expenditure which did not otherwise approve itself to him. To give ten shillings or twenty shillings a bottle for wine, because somebody pretended that it was very fine, or three hundred pounds for a horse, when one at a hundred pounds would do his work for him, was altogether below his philosophy. By his father's lodge gate there ran an omnibus up to town, which he would often use, saying that an omnibus with company was better than a private carriage with none. He was wont to be angry with himself in that he employed a fashionable tailor, declaring that he incurred unnecessary expense merely to save himself the trouble of going elsewhere. In this, however, it may be thought that there was something of pretense, as he was no doubt conscious of good looks and aware, probably, that a skilful tailor might add a grace. In his amusements he affected two which are especially expensive. He kept a yacht, in which he was accustomed to absent himself in the summer and autumn, and he had a small hunting establishment in Northamptonshire. Of the former little needs to be said here, as he spent his time on board much alone, or with friends with whom we need not follow him. But it may be said that everything about the free trader was well done, for such was the name of the vessel. Though he did not pay ten shillings a bottle for his wine, he paid the best price for sails and cordage, and hired a competent skipper to look after himself and his boat. His hunting was done very much in the same way, unless it be that in his yachting he was given to be tranquil, and in his hunting he was very fond of hard riding. At Gorse Hall, as his cottage was called, he had all the comforts, we may perhaps say much of luxury, around him. It was indeed hardly more than a cottage, having been an old farmhouse and lately converted to its present purpose. There were no noble surroundings, no stately hall, no marble staircases, no costly salon. 
you entered by a passage which deserved no auguster name, on the right of which was the dining-room, on the left a larger chamber, always called the drawing-room because of the fashion of the name. Beyond that was a smaller retreat in which the owner kept his books. Leading up from the end of the passage there was a steep staircase, a remnant of the old farmhouse, and above them five bedrooms, so that his lordship was limited to the number of four guests. Behind this was the kitchen and the servants' rooms, sufficient, but not more than sufficient, for such a house. Here our young democrat kept half a dozen horses, all of them, as men around were used to declare, fit to go, although they were said to have been bought at not more than one hundred pounds each. It was supposed to be a crotchet on the part of Lord Hampstead to assert that cheap things were as good as dear, and there were some who believed that he did in truth care as much for his horses as other people. It was certainly a fact that he never would have but one out in a day, and he was wont to declare that Smith took out his second horse chiefly that Jones might know that he did so. Down here at Gorse Hall the post-office clerk had often been received as a visitor, but not at Gorse Hall had he ever seen Lady Frances. This lord had peculiar ideas about hunting, in reference to sport in general. It was supposed of him, and supposed truly, that no young man in England was more devotedly attached to fox-hunting than he, and that in want of a fox he would ride after a stag, and in want of a stag after a drag. If everything else failed, he would go home across the country, any friend accompanying him, or else alone. Nevertheless, he entertained a vehement hostility against all other sports. Of racing, he declared that it had become simply a way of making money, and of all ways the least profitable to the world, and the most disreputable. He was never seen on a race course. But his enemies declared of him that though he loved riding, he was no judge of an animal's pace, and that he was afraid to bet lest he should lose his money. Against shooting he was still louder. If there was in his country any tradition, any custom, any law hateful to him, it was such as had reference to the preservation of game. The preservation of a fox, he said, stood on a perfectly different basis. The fox was not preserved by law, and when preserved was used for the advantage of all who chose to be present at the amusement. One man in one day would shoot fifty pheasants, which had eaten up the food of half a dozen human beings. One fox afforded in one day amusement to two hundred sportsmen, and was, or more generally was not, killed during the performance. And the fox, during his beneficial life, had eaten no corn, nor for the most part geese, but chiefly rats and such like. What infinitesimal sum had the fox cost the country for every man who rushed after him? Then what had been the cost of all those pheasants which one shooting cormorant crammed into his huge bag during one day's greedy sport? 
but it was the public nature of the one amusement and the thoroughly private nature of the other which chiefly affected him in the hunting field the farmer's son if he had a pony or the butcher boy out of the town could come and take his part and if the butcher boy could go ahead and keep his place while the man with a red coat and pink boots and with two horses fell behind the butcher boy would have the best of it and incur the displeasure of no one and the laws too by which hunting is governed if there be laws are thoroughly democratic in their nature they are not he said made by any parliament but are simply assented to on behalf of the common need. It was simply in compliance with opinion that the lands of all men are open to be ridden over by the men of the hunt. In compliance with opinion foxes are preserved. In compliance with opinion coverts are drawn by this or the other pack of hounds. The legislature had not stepped in to defile the statute book by bylaws made in favor of the amusements of the rich if injury were done the ordinary laws of the country were open to the injured party anything in hunting that had grown to be beyond the reach of the law had become so by the force of popular opinion all of this was reversed in shooting from any participation in which the poor were debarred by enactments made solely on behalf of the rich four or five men in a couple of days would offer up hecatombs of slaughtered animals in doing which they could only justify themselves by the fact that they were acting as poultry butchers for the supply of the markets of the country there was no excitement in it simply the firing off of many guns with a rapidity which altogether prevents that competition which is essential to the enjoyment of sport then our noble republican would quote teufelsdrock and the memorable epitaph of the partridge slayer but it was on the popular and unpopular elements of the two sports that he would most strongly dilate and on the iniquity of the game laws as applying to the more aristocratic of the two it was however asserted by the sporting world at large that hampstead could not hit a haystack as to fishing he was almost equally violent grounding his objection on the tedium and cruelty incident to the pursuit the first was only a matter of taste he would allow if a man could content himself and be happy with an average of one fish to every three days fishing that was the man's affair he could only think that in such case the man himself must be as cold-blooded as the fish which he so seldom succeeded in catching as to the cruelty he thought there could be no doubt when he heard that bishops and ladies delighted themselves in hauling an unfortunate animal about by the gills for more than an hour at a stretch he was inclined to regret the past piety of the church and the past tenderness of the sex when he spoke in this way the cruelty of fox-hunting was of course thrown in his teeth did not the poor hunted quadrupeds, when followed hither and thither by a pack of foxhounds, endure torments as sharp and as prolonged as those inflicted on the fish? In answer to this, Lord Hampstead was eloquent and argumentative. As far as we could judge from nature, 
the condition of the two animals during the process was very different. The salmon with the hook in its throat was in a position certainly not intended by nature. The fox, using all its gifts to avoid an enemy, was employed exactly as nature had enjoined. It would be as just to compare a human being impaled alive on a stake with another overburdened with his world's task. The overburdened man might stumble and fall and so perish. Things would have been hard to him. But not, therefore, could you compare his sufferings with the excruciating agonies of the poor wretch who had been left to linger and starve with an iron rod through his vitals. This argument was thought to be crafty rather than cunning by those who were fond of fishing. But he had another on which, when he had blown off the steam of his eloquence by his sensational description of a salmon impaled by a bishop, he could depend with greater confidence. He would grant, for the moment, though he was by no means sure of the fact, but for the moment he would grant that the fox did not enjoy the hunt. Let it be acknowledged, for the sake of the argument, that he was tortured by the hounds rather than elated by the triumphant success of his own maneuvers. Lord Hampstead ventured to say, this he would put forward in the rationalistic tone with which he was wont to prove the absurdity of hereditary honors, that in the infliction of all pain the question as to cruelty or no cruelty was one of relative value. Was it tanti? Who can doubt that for a certain maximum of good a certain minimum of suffering may be inflicted without slur to humanity? In hunting, one fox was made to finish his triumphant career, perhaps prematurely, for the advantage of two hundred sportsmen. Ah, but only for their amusement would interpose some humanitarian, averse equally to fishing and to hunting. Then his lordship would arise indignantly, and would ask his opponent whether what he called amusement was not as beneficial, as essential, as necessary to the world, as even such material good things as bread and meat. Was poetry less valuable than the multiplication table? Man could exist, no doubt, without fox-hunting. So he could without butter, without wine, or other so-called necessaries without ermine tippets, for instance, the original god-invested wearer of which had been doomed to lingering starvation and death when trapped amidst the snow, in order that one lady might be made fine by the agonies of a dozen little furry sufferers. It was all a case of tanti, he said, and he said that the fox who had saved himself half a dozen times and then died nobly on behalf of those who had been instrumental in preserving an existence for him ought not to complain of the lot which fate had provided for him among the animals of the earth. It was said, however, in reference to this comparison between fishing and fox-hunting, that Lord Hampstead was altogether deficient in that skill and patience which is necessary for the landing of a salmon. But men, though they laughed at him, still they liked him. He was good-humoured and kindly-hearted. He was liberal in more than his politics. He had, too, a knack of laughing at himself and his own peculiarities, which went far to redeem them 
that a young earl, an embryo marquis, the heir of such a house as that of Trafford, should preach a political doctrine which those who heard ignorantly called communistic, was very dreadful. But the horror of it was mitigated when he declared that, no doubt, as he got old, he should turn Tory like any other radical. In this there seemed to be a covert allusion to his father. And then they could perceive that his communistic principles did not prevent him from having a good eye to the value of land. He knew what he was about, as an owner of property should do, and certainly rode to hounds as well as any one of the boys of the period. When the idea first presented itself to him that his sister was on the way to fall in love with George Roden, it has to be acknowledged that he was displeased. It had not occurred to him that this peculiar breach would be made on the protected sanctity of his own family. When Roden had spoken to him of this sanctity as one of the social idolatries, he had not quite been able to contradict him. He had wished to do so, both in defense of his own consistency, and also, if it were possible, so as to maintain the sanctity. The divinity which does hedge a king had been to him no more than a social idolatry. The special respect in which dukes and such like were held was the same. The judge's ermine and the bishop's apron were idolatries. Any outward honor not earned by the deeds or words of him so honored, but coming from birth, wealth, or from the doings of another, was an idolatry. Carrying on his argument, he could not admit the same thing in reference to his sister, or rather he would have to admit it if he could not make another plea in defense of the sanctity. His sister was very holy to him, but that should be because of her nearness to him, because of her sweetness, because of her own gifts, because, as her brother, he was bound to be her especial knight till she should have chosen some other special knight for herself. But it should not be because she was the daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter of dukes and marquises. It should not be because she was Lady Frances Trafford. Had he himself been a post-office clerk, then would not this chosen friend have been fit to love her? There were unfitnesses, no doubt, very common in this world, which should make the very idea of love impossible to a woman. Unfitness of character, of habits, of feelings, of education. Unfitnesses as to inward personal nobility. He could not say that there were any such which ought to separate his sister and his friend. If it was to be that this sweet sister should some day give her heart to a lover, why not to George Roden as well as to another? There were no such unfitnesses as those of which he would have thought in dealing with the lives of some other girl and some other young man, and yet he was, if not displeased, at any rate dissatisfied. There was something which grated against either his taste or his judgment, or perhaps his prejudices. He endeavored to inquire into himself fairly on this matter, 
and feared that he was yet the victim of the prejudices of his order. He was wounded in his pride to think that his sister should make herself equal to a clerk in the post-office, though he had often endeavored, only too successfully, to make her understand how little she had in truth received from her high birth. Yet he felt that she had received something which should have made the proposal of such a marriage distasteful to her. A man cannot rid himself of a prejudice because he knows or believes it to be a prejudice. That the two, if they continue to wish it, must become man and wife, he acknowledged to himself. But he could not bring himself not to be sorry that it should be so. There were some words on the subject between himself and his father before the Marquis went abroad with his family, which, though they did not reconcile him to the match, lessened the dissatisfaction. His father was angry with him, throwing the blame of this untoward affair on his head, and he was always prone to resent censure thrown by any of his family on his own particular tenets. Thus it came to pass that in defending himself he was driven to defend his sister also. The Marquis had not been at Hendon when the revelation was first made, but had heard it in the course of the day from his wife. His radical tendencies had done very little towards reconciling him to such a proposal. He had never brought his theories home into his own personalities. To be a radical peer in the House of Lords, and to have sent a radical tailor to the House of Commons, had been enough, if not too much, to satisfy his own political ideas. To himself and to his valet, to all those immediately touching himself, he had always been the Marquis of Kingsbury, and so also in his inner heart the Marchioness was the Marchioness, and Lady Frances, Lady Frances. He had never gone through any process of realizing his convictions as his son had done. Hampstead, he said, can this possibly be true, what your mother has told me? This took place at the house in Park Lane, to which the Marquis had summoned his son. Do you mean about Francis and George Roden? Of course I mean that. I supposed you did, sir. I imagined that when you sent for me it was in regard to them. No doubt it is true. What is true? You speak as though you absolutely approved it. Then my voice has belied me, for I disapprove of it. You feel, I hope, how utterly impossible it is? Not that. Not that? I cannot say that I think it to be impossible, or even improbable. Knowing the two as I do, I feel the probability to be on their side. That they should be married? That is what they intend. I never knew either of them to mean anything which did not sooner or later get itself accomplished. You'll have to learn it on this occasion. How on earth can it have been brought about? Lord Hampstead shrugged his shoulders. Somebody has been very much to blame. You mean me, sir. Somebody has been very much to blame. Of course you mean me. I cannot take any blame in the matter. 
in introducing George Roden to you, and to my mother, and to Francis, I brought you to the knowledge of a highly educated and extremely well-mannered young man. Good God! I did to my friend what every young man, I suppose, does to his. I should be ashamed of myself to associate with anyone who was not a proper guest for my father's table. One does not calculate before that a young man and a young woman shall fall in love with each other. You see what has happened? It was extremely natural, no doubt, though I had not anticipated it. As I told you, I am very sorry. It will cause many heartburns and some unhappiness. Unhappiness? I should think so. I must go away, in the middle of the session. It will be worse for her, poor girl. It will be very bad for her, said the Marquis, speaking as though his mind were quite made up on that matter. But nobody, as far as I can see, has done anything wrong, continued Lord Hampstead. When two young people get together, whose tastes are similar, and opinions, whose educations and habits of thought have been the same. Habits the same? Habits of thought, I said, sir. You would talk the hind legs off a dog, said the Marquis, bouncing out of the room. It was not unusual with him, in the absolute privacy of his own circle, to revert to language which he would have felt to be unbecoming to him, as Marquis of Kingsbury, among ordinary people. End of section two. Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.